This is a very interesting book. I've never taught through Titus in my life, so this is a first for me. And I'm finding it to be different than I anticipated. You know, I've read through Titus. That didn't mean I've never read through Titus. I've read through Titus many times, but when you actually have to do the background and do all the work that's involved to exegete a text, which means to tear it apart and get the real meaning, you discover that oftentimes your initial reading is different than the intended meaning. And that's what I've discovered. But anyway, now that you're in Titus, let me give you a little bit of summary. The Apostle Paul and his team have gone to the island of Crete, and they have won many people to Christ, and they've planted churches throughout many of the cities on the island of Crete. Now, the island of Crete is 165 miles long, so there are a lot of major cities there. And they planted churches. And these churches need to grow. They need to be organized. And so Paul leaves Titus on the island of Crete to do three things. First, set in order that which is lacking. You see that in verse 5. Set in order the things that are lacking. Number two, he's to appoint elders over those churches. And you see that at the end of verse 5. It says, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. That's what I left you there for. Get to it. And then finally, he is told to confront a group of Jewish Christians, so-called, they're Jewish church members, who are teaching heresy and trying to get the Christians to come back under the law. And he tells them in verse 13 to rebuke them sharply. You see that. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. And look at verse 16 in chapter 1. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. And so what you have is you have these, these false teachers in the church in a sense, filling the vacuum, once Paul leaves, and teaching these people wrong things. But that's not all he's supposed to do. He is also to be a model. Titus is to be a model of what a good Christian looks like. So, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He's then told to do this. But as for you... You speak things that are proper for sound doctrine. Notice it says, but as for you. There's a contrast between you, that's Titus, and they in verse 16. They profess to know God. See that? That's the opposers who are teaching heresy. But look at verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, Titus, look, what is Titus to do? Speak things that are proper or in accordance with or fitting for sound doctrine. And that phrase, sound doctrine, is just another word for the gospel. The word sound gospel, sound teaching, sound words, uh, it's just the way Paul is describing the gospel here. Now, notice there's that word sound. You see that? That's borrowed from the medical profession. That means healthy. For you... Titus, but you, you teach a healthy or a wholesome gospel. A gospel that produces healthy Christians. These other guys are teaching an unsound gospel. A truncated gospel that does not produce 
healthy Christians or whole Christians. Uh, they do not talk about the importance of the fruit of your faith. Our faith should be uh, demonstrated through our good works, and they're not emphasizing any of that. And so their gospel is unsound. So he's saying you preach a sound or a healthy gospel. Now who is he to preach to? It's very interesting when you look at this. We discover he's going to preach or speak or talk about the sound gospel to five different groups. Group number one is found in verse two. Older men. Do you see that? Older men. Group number two, verse three. Older women. Group number four, young women. Group number five, verse six, young men. And then group number six, verse nine, bond servants. So he is to speak a message that produces a healthy or a wholesome Christian. And he is to demonstrate it in his own life. So let's look at this first group that Titus is to speak to. I'm going to call this the grandfathers. Okay? Grandfathers. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, or verse 2 of chapter 2. But as for you, you speak things which are sound doctrine, that the older men... Now, who are these older men? Uh, according to first century writings, it's not biblical writings, but just writings that you find in the first century, older men were men who were 60 years or older. 60 years or older. Okay. So if you fall into that category, this message is for you. And I would say that's, that's some of them. A 60-year-old man is a man who has raised his own family, now they're grown, and his children have a family. And they have children. So this would be a grandfather. Okay, so that makes sense. So these instructions are to grandfathers. And look what he says to older men. So if you're 60 years or older, here is what you're to do. According to Paul. Okay. Look what it says. Be sober. And that means clear thinking. Uh, be able to think clearly. Don't allow anything to cloud your judgment. Be rational. If there's anything that impairs your thinking and your judgment, don't participate in that. It could be your imagination. It could be what you're seeing on the internet. Whatever it is that clouds your judgment. You should not be involved in that. So there's sober. Avoid whatever it takes. Okay, That's number one. That's pretty good. Number two, be reverent. Look at that in verse two. Be reverent. That means be pious. Act dignified. Act your age. And you think that you, you tell that to children, act your age. Paul says to Titus, you need to tell these older guys, act your age. How many guys, when they get 60, act, want to be teenagers again? Everything changes. It's like they've lost their minds or something. You know, be reverent. Be sensible. Be, be worthy of respect. You know, be dignified. That's what he's saying here. Don't, be, don't act like a buffoon. You're 60. You know? 
Now, I don't know if I've reached 60 or not. I used to have brown hair. My hair is now gray. What's happened to me? I don't know what's happened. But don't be foolish. Don't be frivolous, you know. Don't play the clown. And so many times you see older men, that happens to them when they, for some reason, they feel that they need to act like they're teenagers instead of being dignified. Then look at the next thing. Temperate or prudent or moderate, if you want to use that word, or self-controlled. Be moderate. Don't do outlandish things. And then in verse 2, this is a triplet right here. Sound in faith. That means your faith should be healthy. That word sound means healthy, remember? Sound in love. Sound in patience. In other words, you should have a healthy trust in God. Your trust, your faith should be ever increasing. You should be charitable. That's what the word love means. You should be selfless. You should be more charitable now at the age of 60 than you were at the age of 16. You should be more selfless. Children are selfish. You should be more selfless now. Healthy selflessness. Healthy charity. And then steadfast. It says impatience. Steadfast. That means you're, you need to finish the race. You need to endure until the end. Because we are on the last leg of our journeys. And we need to finish strong. I tell my students, I want to be an example to you of what it looks like to finish strong. I want you to know, you're 20 years old, and here I am, 40 years older than you. I want you to see what a Christian, a real Christian looks like when they reach 60. So we should endure. Now, we have faith there, you have love, and endurance is like hope, which deals with the future. Continue to go on and finish the race. So faith, hope, and love, really, are right there. So don't give up. Act, if I would summarize, it would be act like an elder statesman. Because that's what you are in the church of Jesus Christ. Be dignified. Now the next word is the grandmothers. So if you fall into this category, this is for you. Look at verse 3. The older woman likewise. So what was an older woman in Bible times? 60 years old. So if you're 60 years old, this is for you. Remember a widow? One who is going to receive help from the church. Paul gives them, he says, they have to be three score. At least three, they have to be 60 years old in order to get help from the church. And not be married. They've only been married once, and so it gives a whole bunch of things. So this is a 60-year-old woman or older. Here is the instructions to them. Verse 3. That they be reverent in behavior. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Act dignified. You're not a teenager anymore. You know, know what you should be wearing, you know, know what you should be saying, you know. Have, live a life that's befitting somebody who is dignified, reverent, devout, if you want to use those words. Next in verse 3. Now this is a negative. Not slanderers. Not gossips. Not talking about people. Not putting people down. When you do that, you fall into the hands of Satan. Satan is a slanderer. That's what the name Satan means. Accuser of the brethren. Slanderer. Don't be a slanderer. 
if I would put it in good old plain English today, I'd say, hey, control your tongue. Think before you speak. That makes sense? That's what he's telling 60-year-old women and older. And what else? Verse 3. Not given to much wine. Not given over, not addicted to, not enslaved to. Uh, not taking a drink and then not being able to stop. But you need to take the third and the fourth drink. So, and that's a problem with older women. Most people don't realize that. A lot of older women, you know, can really tip them. Yeah. And, uh, and it was it was just like that in Paul's day. I have a lot of experience knowing that. Yeah. So <laughs> these are church women, right? So he doesn't say you should never take a drink, but guess what he says? Don't be enslaved by it. You know, don't be addicted to it. Now the problem is that everybody who's addicted to alcohol doesn't believe they are. They say, I'm not an alcoholic. But the truth of the matter is, you know, if you can't take one drink and put it down, and you have to have that second, there's something that says, oh, I want another one, then you are an alcoholic. You probably don't have control over the situation. So, uh, and some older women are hiding her, their alcoholism from their husbands. You know, so you've heard all those stories. I don't need to preach on that. Okay, now look at the last thing. And this is very interesting. So here's what you are to do, and this is very important, and I think the church, church women fail very often in this. Look right at the end of verse 3. Teachers of good things. Uh, older women are to teach. They're to teach good things. We'll look at that, what that is in a second. But they're to teach not only in word, but also in deed and by example. Now, who is the older woman to teach? Look who they're to teach. This is category number three, young women, that they admonish the young women. So one of the jobs of women who are 60 years of old, older, older, is to teach good things by exhorting or encouraging the younger women. Now, who are the younger women? These would be women who are somewhere between 15 and 30. Because remember, women at 15 were married in Bible times. So the younger women would be 15 to 30. And your job as an older woman is to teach the younger women, teach them what? Number one, to love their husbands. And number two, to love their children. <clears throat> now look at this. Titus is not to teach the younger women. It's very interesting, isn't it? So we can make an assumption that Titus is probably young himself. And he probably thinks, Paul probably thinks, it's not good for Titus to be hanging around all these women and teaching them by himself. So Titus is to teach the older women, and then the older women, in turn, are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. Now why would you have to teach somebody to love their husbands why would you have to teach somebody to love their children? You'd think that's intuitive, wouldn't you? The fact that they have to teach is an indication that they need to learn. This is something that's learned. You know, when I was in college, there was a book. I think it was Eric Fromm with the book. And it was Love is Learned. Anybody ever read about that? Love is Learned? 
if you don't have any sociologists in the club. And so you had better sense than I did when I was <laughs> But love is something that's not necessarily intuitive because guess what? We are very selfish people. And so women, there's a need here for the younger women to learn how to be wives and to learn how to take care of their children. Remember, love is not an emotion. Love is an act of charity. It's, it's, it's a selfless act. And so that's what he's saying, to be selfless toward your husband, to be selfless toward your children. This is a second generation of Christians. The older women would have been the first generation. So if I were going to try to describe it in modern terms, I would say you older women need to be mentors to younger women. You know how many younger women don't know how to cook? Well, I have, I have daughter-in-laws. I can tell you how many younger women don't know how to cook. And it's not that, but guess what? They have to learn. Where do they usually learn to cook? From their mothers. But that, and the grandmother, that, that was in a day, however, when women didn't work. Right? where the mother was home all day and she cooked all day. Remember that generation? And so the young girls, they learned how to cook. But what happens if their mother's gone at 7 in the morning, they get home to 5, 6 in the afternoon, and the young girls don't learn how to cook, see, from their mothers? Well, Paul says here, one of the things that the older women are doing is to mentor these young women. I know young women don't know how to iron a shirt. Because their husbands iron their shirt. I know. See, right there. You're revealing something. Or how to discipline the kids. Or how to handle money. Or not getting debt. All these things are what the women of the church are to do. So that means basically that those of you who are 60 years or older are responsible to reach and teach the generation that follows you. So let me ask you a question. How well have you really done? On a scale of 1 to 10, we ask the next, not asking you, by the way, I was just throwing that question out to you. If we ask the girls 15 to 30 how well you've done in mentoring them, what would they say? Maybe the grades wouldn't be as high as we hope, you know? So that's important. So one of the things that the older women are to do is to mentor the young women. And look what else they're to do. That's not all. They're to teach them to be discreet. That's important. Circumspect, you know. What else in verse 5? Chaste. Pure. That's important. Homemakers. Homemakers. How to make a home in those days. Uh, not be idle, not be lazy. Uh, in those days, women usually didn't work. And so there would have been a great opportunity to just be idle and be lazy. And so they were to teach them to be homemakers. See? Good. That means to be upright, kind, you know, righteous, obedient to their own husbands. Remember when we were in Colossians? We saw a lot of things just like this, didn't we? And remember what we called those, those instructions? Household codes. Do you remember that? And that's exactly what we have here. These are household codes. Because you have 
grandfathers, grandmothers, younger women, younger men, and slaves who were also part of a household, and these are all instructions to the people who would be part of your larger household. And these would be household codes. And so here a woman is told to be obedient or submissive, especially in that day when girls were getting married at 15 years old, even younger times, to be submissive to their own husbands because they, having no authority whatsoever, would listen to what any man told them to do. So you can see how these instructions would be very important. Now, why are you to teach these women to do those things? Now look at this at the end of verse 5. This is a purpose statement. That, so that, in order that, the word of God may not be blasphemed. Meaning by outsiders. The outsiders look at the church. And they see that you're not chaste. And they see that you're not pure. And they see that you're not good. And they see that you profess Christ, but your life doesn't show it. And there's no good deeds in, in your life. And they say... If that's what a Christian looks like, guess what? I don't want to be one. That gospel must not be true. That church is full of what? Hypocrites. And as a result, they blaspheme the gospel, which means which is the word of God. That's why it's important. Paul is saying that sound doctrine or sound a healthy gospel produces good works. There's evidence that you really are a believer. And this is the evidence. What you're seeing here, these are the behavioral evidences. Now when I read that at the end of verse 5, you need to do these things and live this certain way that the word of God should not be blasphemed. An immediate thought came to my mind. When David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and he's confronted by Nathan the prophet. Remember what Nathan says? He tells him, what would you do with a man who's very powerful and he used his power to you know, take advantage of a woman, blah, blah, blah. And David said, man, I'd hang that man up by his toes. And what did Nathan say? Thou art the man. Remember what he said that? But that's not all he said. You know what he said after that? Let me show you this. Look over at 2 Samuel. Now, 2 Samuel, just go all the way back in your Old Testament. And you'll get past all those books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, you know, all those. And you'll come to Samuel. And then when you find Samuel, find 2 Samuel. And when you get to 2 Samuel, go to chapter 12. 2 Samuel, chapter 12. So if you've gone to Kings, you've gone, that's past Samuel. So Samuel is before Kings. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, Nathan says, you are the man, right? You got that? Look what he says in verse 14. However, because of this deed, because of your unsavory behavior, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to what? Blaspheme. You see that? Right there, I think that Paul, when he's writing this, thinks about this occasion, and he quotes, basically quotes that verse. When we are doing things like committing adultery and doing things that are not chaste and not upright, 
and not dignified and not sober. We are giving the enemies of our faith an opportunity to blaspheme. So that's what he says back there in Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. He says that the word of God might not be blasphemed. Most lost people don't read a Bible. They read you. You're the only Bible that they're ever going to read. And they judge God and the gospel by your activities and my deeds and my behavior. See, Paul says you are a living epistle being read by men. He says that in 2 Corinthians. And so these are instructions for the older men, 60 years of older, older women, 60 years of older, younger women, and now we come to the younger men, which I'm going to call husbands. Look at verse 6. Likewise exhort, which means encourage, younger men to be sober-minded. Oh boy, we saw that with older men. I guess we're to be sober-minded from when we're young to when we're old. Our life is to be consistent. We're to be thinking clearly, not getting in the fog of the situation. And that's all he says there, doesn't he? Likewise, exhort young men to be sober-minded. He doesn't give us a list. Why not? Well, he's given us a list already. He's given us so many lists that he could have just put after that, be sober-minded, comma, etc. You know, you get the point. That's what he's saying. You get the point. So what does it mean to be sober-minded? It's just the opposite of sowing your oats. You know, we say, oh, he's just sowing it. No, the young man is to be what? Sober-minded, clear thinking. You know, you're a Christian. You're not a pagan. So live like a Christian. Live like someone who has reign over their minds and their bodies. Sober-minded. You got it in control. You're not out of control. Your body's not out of control. No. Your thinking's not out of control. You're sober-minded. You got reign over your mind and your body, over temptation. Now what happens in verse 7 is we have a parenthesis. It's just like Paul puts a bracket around verse 7. And he's going to speak directly to Titus. And he's going to talk about directly to Titus about his own behavior. And look what he says in verse 7. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Do you see that? In other words, you're to exhort young men to be sober-minded, Titus. But in doing so, because you are also a young man, guess what you're to do? You're to be the model for them. See, that's what verse 7 says. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine. That's against the opposers who are disqualified from every good work up in verse, chapter 1 and verse 16. So Titus is to be an example to the flock and especially to the young men. Look what this uh, entails. Okay? Verse 7. All things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, which would be in ethical teaching and behavior. Here's what it involves. Integrity. Integrity. Reverence. Piety, see? Incorruptibility. 
Purity. Don't live a corrupt life. Live a pious life. Be sincere. Be a person of integrity. That's what a Christian looks like. See? Look at verse 8. Sound speech that cannot be what? Condemned. You're to preach a healthy gospel that produces healthy Christians so that that gospel cannot be condemned. If the people are not living like Christians, that gospel can be condemned. So that's what he's saying there. And here's a purpose statement. Right in the middle of verse 8. That. You see, anytime you see the word that, or most of the times you see the word that, it's a purpose statement. Here's the goal. Here's the reason, the goal, the purpose of all this. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that the one who is an opponent may be ashamed. Because if they charge you with anything and you're living a righteous life, they're wrong and they're ashamed. And guess how, what they're doing? They're claiming these Jewish Judaizers or false teachers who are disqualified from every good work up in chapter 1, verse 16. They're preaching a gospel, but their lives don't show it. And then compare them with the real Christian, Titus, for example, and the comparison is when they look at them, they're ashamed. You know, I remember when I was young, a teenager, you know, every other word was a curse word until the preacher came along. And what did I do when the preacher came along? I shut my trap as fast as I could. And if I did say something out of order when he was around, guess what I was? Ashamed. Because my life, compared to his, did not match up. Now, if you would have said, are you a Christian? I'd say, of course I'm a Christian. What kind of Christian is that? You see, So you can see how Paul is laying out this teaching for Titus. And he's saying, and examine your own life, that they may be ashamed, at the end of verse 8, having nothing evil to say of you or us. So here you see that... Uh, they will be ashamed, but when they look at you, your life is above reproach. It's blameless. It's without fault. And then we come to the last group, which are the bond servants or the oppressed workers. Now, these would be Christian slaves. And Paul is going to explain how slaves are to behave. Christian slaves. Exhort, he tells Titus, to exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters. Now, Paul is not supporting slavery. We've talked about this in Colossians when we were in there. These are just the facts. Slavery was empire-wide, and there's no way he could just say, now it's over. So what happened was, he's talking to a slave who's become a believer, and he says, okay, when you come together in the church and you eat the Lord's Supper, we all get the same food. There's no male or female in Christ. You know, there's no rich or poor in Christ. There's no Jew or Gentile in Christ. There's no slave and free in Christ. In Christ we're all one. But guess what? When we go out into that world, that's not how the world sees us. And if you're a slave, the master just sees you as his property. It doesn't matter how you became a slave. You could have become a slave by becoming a prisoner of war. You got indebted to somebody and now you're working for them. But here's what he says as a Christian out there in the world what you're to do. Be obedient to your masters. Today we'd say 
you know, to your employers. Do what they tell you to do. Uh, unless what they're asking you to do is unethical, in which case then you obey God rather than man. And then what he says. So this would be your deportment. Be obedient to your masters. And next, your disposition. Be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. This has to do with your attitude. Be respectful to your employers. They're paying your check. You're doing the work. You're not the president of the company. You've got a job to do. Do it. Do it as unto the Lord. He will one day reward you. So this has to do with your disposition, your deportment, your disposition, and then your dependability. Look what he says in verse 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. Be trustworthy. Be dependable. Uh, don't steal from your, your master, your employer. Uh, be honest. Be trustworthy. The opposite of what Cretans are. All Cretans are what? Liars. Remember that? Yeah. So he says, you're not to be like the world. You're to be different than the world. And this is how we are to live. And what's the purpose of all this? Look what he says right at the end of verse 10. That, so that, they may adorn the gospel of God, our Savior, in all things. And he's talking again about the slaves. That by doing this, you will be adorning the gospel of God, the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. It's like, we don't just believe the gospel. We actually adorn the gospel. We put the gospel on. It affects our daily life. And so these are the instructions that Paul gives to Titus. We're to wear the gospel as a fresh set of clothing. So these are the guidelines for first century believers living in the Roman Empire. And many of these principles you know, can apply to us as well in the 21st century. When believers today don't live up to the name of Christ, then the cause of Christ suffers. The gospel suffers. People blaspheme the gospel. They say, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And hypocrisy hinders evangelism. And maybe you were in that boat. Maybe you originally wouldn't join the church. You didn't become a Christian because of a bunch of hypocrites in the church. It took a while before God could break through to you. Hypocrisy hinders evangelism. So it's not enough to proclaim Christ. We must live Christ. Now let me just end with this. Something I thought of yesterday morning. What good is it if you believe in the virgin birth? If you're not chaste yourself. What good is it to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ if you live like the devil? So you can believe all this doctrine, and guess what doctrine doesn't save you? The world out there isn't judging you based on your doctrine. They're judging you based on your decorum. What good does it do to believe that Christ died for you, but you don't die yourself? What good does it believe that Jesus was raised from the dead in his body, but in your body, you don't live for Christ? You haven't been born again. 
What good is it to believe in the second coming when you're not obedient to what He said in His first coming? What good is it to say, I believe the Bible is inerrant when you don't practice its precepts? You see? Our orthodoxy must be matched by our orthopraxy. What we believe and what we do must match. And when it does, our lives honor Christ and the blasphemers, blasphemers' mouths are shut. And when they look at you, they say, if that's a Christian, I think I'll look into Christianity. I remember Al Street when he was a drunk. What's happened to him? He says it's Christ. Well, maybe Christ can do something for my life as well. So it's really important that if you're an older man, 60 years or older, or a woman, take the advice. If you're a younger man or a younger woman, take the advice. If you have an oppressive employer, take the advice that Paul gives to Titus. It'll do us well, and Christ's gospel will be on. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, a very convicting passage. <clears throat> Help us to get our lives in line. We all slip. We've all made mistakes. We can all repent. We can all come back to the commitment that we made when we were baptized. When those words were said over us, we died with Christ, and we were raised to walk in newness of life. Oh, Lord, help us to keep that commitment in Christ's name.